Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Get Up and Do Something Uplift podcast series. Today, we sit down with Dr. Michael McKenzie. Dr. McKenzie is a professor at the University of Delaware with a background in mental health rehabilitation and education. He's also the director of the Mind-Body Behavioral Lab. The Mind-Body Behavioral Lab's mission is to advance healthcare models to include better mind-body practices during disease prevention and rehabilitation. Dr. McKenzie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So before we begin, um, I guess we should really just define mindfulness. So what is mindfulness? So it's a really interesting question to start with. And what we're finding is is uh, there's a sort of the classic definition of mindfulness that was um, developed by uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who did a lot of this original work within uh, clinical programs, and particularly mindfulness-based stress reduction. And that was that idea of paying attention in the present moment on purpose non-judgmentally. And it's a, it's a good working definition. But what we're finding now as people are sort of chatting about mindfulness is they're really referring to a confluence of different things. And it really comes under four or five broad categories. Uh, there are practices that are often uh, designed specifically to direct and focus your attention. There's practices uh, that we call open monitoring practices, uh, which really help us sort of cultivate a, a better uh, situational awareness of ourselves and our surroundings. Uh, there are practices uh, so those are kind of the first two that people commonly think of. And I'm going to add sort of three more. Uh, the other ones that we see now are these sort of somatic or physical awareness practices. Uh, the fourth would be these interpersonal uh, relational practices. And the fifth that I think is a really interesting uh, area is these sort of environmental practices. Um, so those are sort of the five broad categories that mindfulness sort of um, um, covers right now. But it all has some sort of uh, relationship to this uh, direction of uh, attention in a specific way uh, without a lot of uh, a lot of narrative. Okay. And how did you become interested in mindfulness? Also a very interesting question. Um, so for my for myself, it was a, actually a very personal uh, journey. Um, I was, um, uh, during my undergraduate degree, uh, I had a, a death of somebody that was quite close to me. Uh, and there was nothing in my sort of immediate worldview that was helping me cope with that. Um, so I started to get interested in in, in mindfulness uh, originally from that perspective. And then I had a um, uh, an injury uh, while I was living overseas, uh, training in a boxing camp in Thailand uh, that didn't heal up particularly well. And I was having a lot of um, what lingering pain, sort of chronic pain issues. And I started to find out about this whole thing that called mindfulness-based stress reduction that was uh, designed for, for chronic pain. So being a guy from Canada, there wasn't a lot of resources and I ended up moving um, from Vancouver, Canada, uh, back to uh, Calgary, uh, also in Canada, where they had a, a mindfulness-based program for cancer survivors. And that's when I really started to get focused on the research. Excellent. So it really helped you like, deal with that pain. Yeah, absolutely. It was very good from an existential perspective in terms of the loss of my friend. And it was also really important in terms of me recovering from my injury. Okay. So we talked about how mindfulness can influence your mental health and your physical health but can we get more specific so how does mindful benefit how does being mindful benefit our mental and physical health right more specifically sure so again if we sort of look at that lens of different practices anytime where we um, strengthen attention can be really helpful um, we see a lot let's just use cancer as an example because it's a, an area I've worked in a lot uh, particularly after somebody's had a cancer experience and a lot of what we hear from people afterwards is they, had, they there's a, a lot of fear of recurrence so ruminating about you know whether it will happen again and all that sort of uh, or will I get sick from something else and what does this mean to my family mm -hmm. so if we go through those areas 
is that the, the first thing is if we can strengthen attention where they have some ability to sort of choose which thoughts they are paying attention to and which not to strengthen that attentional system, that can be really, really valuable. The second piece is to really, uh, this broader open monitoring can be really helpful in terms of, you know, where are these thoughts coming from and how am I interacting with them and what are they sort of, you know, doing in terms of my lens of the world. So, so there's mindfulness practices for that. Um, this third component is around this, the physical awareness as well. You know, when I'm having these thoughts, it's really sort of, um, you know, doing a lot in terms of my physiology, I'm getting upset and that's sort of reinforcing these thoughts and there's this cascade effect. So we can interject some practices around that. Uh, the fourth piece is this relational component. Uh, when people have had a cancer experience, you develop all sorts of relationships you've never had before in terms of uh, being a patient with doctors. Uh, often it can be a time of feeling really powerless. So we can sort of, uh, we can help people negotiate some of those relationships. And then as they return to work, if they've been off for an extended period of time, as they're sort of redefining themselves post-cancer, uh, we look at these relational practices. And then the other one that we're starting to look at more and more with these sort of environmental ecological practices is, you know, so what does this really kind of look like from a community setting? And a lot of the time, what are the things that I now kind of want in my life and what are the things that I don't want in my life? Um, and again, after a cancer experience, that's a time where people are, it's a, a real time of reflection and these practices can be helpful. Okay. So can mindfulness be taught? Absolutely. So uh, we have a very strong belief that, um, and a lot of really uh, uh, interesting emerging research uh, from the whole area of uh, cognitive science that says that these are, are trainable uh, things the same way as we can, you know, uh, train our bodies through physical activity or, you know, proper nutrition, uh, that the mind is, uh, has a certain degree of malleability, uh, that's, uh, that's trainable. Now, the important thing is, is, um, we don't train everybody the same. Uh, so sometimes, uh, we, uh, there's, uh, there can be a little bit of a one size fits all approach with some of the mindfulness programs that are out there. And I think as an introduction, that's okay. Uh, but there's a lot of, um, there's a real art to which practices people really gravitate towards how we dose them up in terms of, uh, how they're, um, useful and how to sort of sustain them over time. So we can be quite prescriptive. And I think that's one of the new, really interesting areas of research is how do we be prescriptive with some of these practices? Yeah. I think that's really important to actually, you know, meet the person where they are and kind of for people to learn. Um, but because everybody's different and would pick things up differently. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And again, if we look at those sort of five broad categories, you know, you might really be, just be focused on attention uh, right now. You might really be focused on a somatic practice. You might be really interested in these sort of relational practices. Um, so which sort of door you walk through um, can be uh, a really important factor to consider when you're working with people around these practices, as well as things like how much time do they have, do they have any background in it, um, you know, things of that nature. So can you describe some of the populations that you've worked with? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, my primary area that I had started to work with was cancer su survivorship. Um, and that's continued to be my primary area of, of interest. Um, I also, so before I became an academic, I worked in, I worked in a, in a counseling capacity for a number of years. My, my, uh, my master's degrees in counseling psychology. Um, so I worked in cancer survivorship. Uh, I was really fortunate to work in the addictions world, um, for a while, um, where we were looking at something called mindfulness-based relapse prevention, um, and, and using that within a community setting, uh, within, uh, Vancouver, uh, which is really for Canada now, the kind of the uh, heart, unfortunately, of the opioid epidemic. Um, and then a lot within just sort of general everybody day practices, 
Uh, since I've been here at UD, there's been a lot of interest and a lot of opportunities. Um, I've worked really closely with some faculty over in human development and family sciences in terms of some of the work that they're doing with parents and children. Um, I have a wonderful colleague um, that was at uh, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, where we were doing uh, work with, um, with uh, in maternal addiction, uh, particularly around parenting. Um, I do a lot of work now with students on on campus as well as um, sort of employee and faculty wellness. Yeah. So you've been in this for a long time. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it's longer than 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 you would imagine. So I started my personal interest was um, started in about 1994. Yeah. Um, and then I got involved in a teaching capacity sort of 1999 2000. So it's been kind of 18 years um, within a within a, a sort of a, a research clinical setting and probably pretty close to 25 yeah. years in terms of my own experience. You started it before it was cool. <laughs> now I feel like, <laughs> yeah. in the, in the, you know, you started the trend. Yeah. Well, I but, mean, we, we kind of joke around that. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't get arrested doing this stuff in the, in the nineties um, or even the early two thousands. But I mean, I think there's a, a good level of evidence there. Um, I was talking with a colleague the other day, you know, when we first started, you'd see maybe a dozen, two dozen, um, papers in a year. And now I probably see upwards of two, three dozen papers a month in this wow. area. Um, so it's, it's a really, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting area. And, and, and there's a lot of people doing research in this area, which is, which is great. Um, it's a very uh, rich environment to be in. So I think I struggle in my everyday life to be mindful. And I know a lot of students do and faculty and people, you know, on the street, but sure. what prevents us from being mindful? Why does that happen? Yeah. So, I mean, and, and we don't need to be mindful all the time. I think this is one of the, not, not that you've um, shared this, but I think this is one of the misconceptions that I, that I come up against in, in the community. Sometimes we have to somehow have some sort of laser like focus at all times. And, and we're, we're just not designed that way. And, you know, there's some interesting research now that shows that some of these sort of states of mindlessness, if um, you know, aren't necessarily bad There's times of creativity, there's times to kind of go offline. Uh, they're really, really valuable, but the, that we have, uh, challenges directing our attention uh that's that's the issue and i think with our um culture um you know cell phones certainly don't don't always help uh the speed at which uh, uh we're we're uh, exposed to information the expectations uh, sometimes in terms of how we um interact with that information are 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 different. Um, how much we load up our plates can be really, really challenging. Um, and a lot of what we see is people just don't really have time to recover like they used to anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so we just, we have a lot going on all the time and it doesn't stop. And to do all that, um, we cut out of our sort of recovery type activities. So people are sleeping less than they used to, things of that nature. You mentioned cell phones. So you think that technology and this modern life that we're living has influenced our mindfulness? Yeah, I think technology, you know, like anything is a real double-edged sword. It can be a real blessing. And there's some incredible um, uh, resources uh, that I, you know, wish I would have had 20 years ago online now. And in terms of some of these, uh, like, amazing apps mm -hmm. that are out there now that I think are absolutely phenomenal. But um, they're our screens are also a giant uh, time suck um, in terms of uh, we put a tracking something I was doing with some students, we put a tracking app on, on, on our phones and, you know, people were reporting up to, you know, three, four hours a day of cell phone use, let alone what they were doing on their laptops or if they were, you know, watching, uh, you know, Netflix or, you know, television at home. I mean, that, that's a, that's a real uh, time commitment uh, where often our attention is in our own. 
Um, and our attention is precious. We wouldn't sort of give over our other resources that readily, you know, why is it that our attention is this thing that uh, we're so happy to give away as a commodity? Yeah, I'm guilty yeah. of all of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, me too. Uh, yeah. You know, this, this is a, uh, nobody's, uh, it's, it's, it's challenging. So you mentioned earlier about some misconceptions about mindfulness. What are some other ones that come to mind? Um, so I'll just, I'll, I'll recap a little bit. You know, mindfulness is a, is, is, is a number of things. It's not just one thing. So oftentimes when people are talking about mindfulness, I'm very uh, interested to hear what specifically they might be uh, talking about. Uh, the other thing is that it's some sort of panacea. Um, I think it's an incredibly valuable tool to have in your toolbox. I think this is an important our practice is anything that we else that we do for our health and wellness and our and our mental well being, um, but uh, we are individuals and we need some 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 help that way. The other thing that I see a lot of is that people kind of equivocate um, mindfulness in some sort of relaxation response. So if you're not enjoying it when you're doing a practice, somehow you're bad at it or um, that it's not working. Uh, and the reality is, is like physical activity or, or, or anything else, there's going to be times where it feels a little dry, where it's not kind of uh, as pleasurable in the moment, but we know that long-term it's shifting our behaviors and that there's some benefit. So uh, we used to joke around that uh, with the mindfulness-based stress reduction program is that sometimes at the beginning, it's stressful to take the stress reduction program because uh, this is a totally new tool set and it's a new practice and it takes a while to, to develop some familiarity. Um, so a little bit of patience and again, that non, non judging can be really helpful and some curiosity around, Oh, well, why is this so hard? Um, can really, um, help people work through those times where it's, uh, feeling a little bit challenging. So it might take some time to actually get good at it or, you know, master. Absolutely. You know, and that's where, um, you know, in the, in the old, not the old days, I mean, I'm not that old, but, um, <laughs> you know, we, we kind of got trained, like I, I joke around and say like mini monks, like, you know, everybody was supposed to do these sort of very formal practices that were derived from these really rich contemplative traditions that, but they had a community to support them. So, you know, we were doing like, you know, 45 minutes of sitting, you know, a couple of times a day, you know, walking 30 minutes a day, and then going on these retreats where you're, you know, you're really immersed in that for a long period of time. And that's, not our, not everybody's reality. And there's more and more interesting research that's coming out that's saying, you know, we can really, you know, do this much more incrementally with smaller doses. And as long as it's consistent, we're deriving um, some, some similar benefits. Uh, now the jury's still out on that one in terms of, you know, what the, is there like an ideal dose response? I, I don't feel like that literature is there yet, uh, but boy, are some people trying really, really hard to figure that out right now. I think it's exciting. Right. All right. So, what are three ways, if you had to choose, to be more mindful in our everyday lives? Like three main different things that we can do. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in um, a little bit of formal practice, a lot of informal practice. Uh, so what I mean by that is uh, I really recommend that people develop some sort of concrete practice that they do as consistently as brushing their teeth. And, you know, to work a little bit more closely with someone, we would look at those sort of um categories of practice and we would find a practice that that somebody can dive into and whether they need to do that in a way that's facilitated um, through you know one of the amazing apps that's out there or, or something else so that they're sort of being guided for a while I think that's valuable and we set it up in a time that's doable for them so even if we're starting out as you know um, you know as much as you know five minutes a couple of times a day of formalized practice and we build it up over time as we need to but the more important thing and i think the thing that's really helpful for most people is what are these sort of mini micro practices that people can be doing throughout the day uh, as they're transitioning from 
uh, their office to home or from meeting to meeting or from the gym back to the car. Uh, so we use a few different practices um, that are helpful that way. The one that I tend to use a lot is this, uh, it's called the sober technique. Um, it comes from the mindfulness and addictions world. Uh, get it sober. Um, <laughs> and really that acronym is, you know, cultivating this ability to stop or pause um, and direct our attention as we'd like to do. Uh, this ability to observe um, ourself and our surroundings without having to, you know, have any big narrative around it. Uh, this opportunity to attend to the breath or the body. So to cultivate some awareness of our, of our, of our physiological sensations in our body and kind of check out. That's a lot of data. Um, you know, if you really get good at paying attention to your breath and body, you're, you're learning a lot really quickly about yourself in any given moment. Uh, the E part is the tough one for most people, but it's this ex sort of expansive awareness. So if you've stopped and observed and breathed, you're usually having some insight that you might not have had before. Um, so I joke around sometimes with um, the people that I work with, you know, if, you're, if there's ever a time you're going to find your car keys, it's usually during that time of expansive awareness, or it's often a time of sort of, of, of insight. Now, it doesn't happen every time, but certainly it, we get these sort of micro shifts in perspective that we can kind of take into consideration. And the R of sober is probably the most important thing is, is how does that change your response set? So having all this data that you've just done in, you know, two or three minutes in a small practice, how is that going to shift your um your, your behavior moving forward or your relations or whatever it is that you're trying to cultivate in that moment. Uh, so that's a really, really good one. So a um, little bit of formal practice, uh, a lot of informal practice. And then I tend to say, if you can bracket your day um, with um, doing something in the morning, kind of get to get yourself going. So this is going to be on your radar. And at the end of the day, you know, do a little check-in. Um, I've got a colleague that says he never goes to bed, even if it's been a total, uh, gong show day where nothing kind of went the way that it was supposed to and every single practice all the intentions went out the window um he always sort of sits down at the end of the day and does a couple of minutes of practice before bed and i think that that's really valuable consistency is so important with everything that we do and this this is no different consistency is key yeah. consistency is key so i've heard a lot of people talk about body scans mm. so can you explain to us what that is yeah so body scan is a really useful tool we use it um well, we, we use it uh, um, all over the place, um, particularly um, I'm just sort of thinking about the cancer world that I, I worked in and we, and we use that that body scan a lot. And it does different things for different people. So I'm going to be really blunt. So, sure. Sometimes people, it, it, it really gives us an opportunity to uh, attend to sensations as they are in the body um, and and, uh, and, to, and to work with sensation in the body. And it, it sort of creates this... this um, this uh, pattern of connection between our, our mental awareness and, our, and our, our somatic awareness that can be really useful and has um, um, some sort of um, uh, bleed over into other facets of our lives. And then for other people, it just knocks them right out. So I've got people that are say, you know, always say, Mike, you know, I really like the body scan puts me to sleep every night. And I'm like, Hey, you must really need to get some sleep. Um, okay, great. You know, uh, cause a lot of the people that we see um, are, um, probably the number two or number three problem that we hear from people other than stress is that uh, as a function of their stresses, they're just, they're exhausted and they're not, but yet they're not sleeping very well. So if that's like a free trip to night night land for you uh, for a while, I think, I think that's great. Um, if you really want to sort of look at some of the other fruits, sometimes we say, well, maybe do that one a little bit earlier and we can look at some of those other somatic ones. So basically in terms of what it is, is we just uh, develop this ability to scan through the body. Um, so uh, you can, uh, I tend to start go top to bottom. Other people go bottom to top. I, if I go bottom to top, for whatever reason, it knocks me out. I was the guy that was always sleeping during the body scan. And, you know, I had a, thankfully I'd always have a neighbor to kind of nudge me awake. 
Um, and really it's just uh, that ability to, to be aware of, um, of sensation in the body. So we can look at like things that like tension or relaxation, uh, absence of tension, uh, sensations of warmth or coolness. Um, and we can move through the, through the body sort of from top to bottom, you know, sense the body as a whole. We can focus on sensations of the breath. There's all sorts of things that we can do to sort of train our awareness that way. What I tend to hear from people is once they get good at that in terms of a formal setting, um, it tends to really hone that radar in terms of their, their, their sort of physiology as a whole, that mind body um, as a whole, as they're walking around throughout the day. So as stress is starting to come up, they're much more aware of it. When they're having periods of elation where they're feeling really good about something, they're able that that uh, sort of intrinsically they the body holds on to it a little bit more. Um, so it's a really uh, it's a really really neat practice. Um, lots of different resources out there now for people that want to play around with it and then some people use it more like a uh, again more like a relaxation response kind of knock you out thing and that's that's got value too i've done it a few times during yoga like at the end of practice oh like a shavasana right kinda? yeah um, i've never tried it sleep like during right. my bedtime that's actually right. a great idea I have to try that yeah and see and even then that, that's an interesting thing is you know are those is the is the body scan and 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 a supine resting pose at, at the end of yoga the same thing? Well, depending on who's teaching it for what purpose it might be, or they might be two radically different things. You're just looking at somebody lying on the floor going, well, you know, maybe it is. But depending on sort of what you're focusing on uh, at any moment, they, they could be radically different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we talked about what mindfulness is now, but is there a future to mindfulness? Do you see it evolving into something else? Yeah, I think that the, sort of the interesting stuff that I'm seeing right now is that it's it's really and again, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. It's certainly a thing. Um, as it's transitioned from um, a lot of this was really derived by people that lived in a couple of different worlds. One, they had some sort of contemplative practice that they had been working with. Um, sometimes as part of a faith community, and they were really seeing where this could be advantageous within like a clinical health setting. And they kind of straddled both worlds. And with the sort of the the, uh, the huge um, interest and research that's that's happening now, I see a lot of um, what we're doing is moving more towards uh, sort of a secular, functional, humanist, medical medical kind of approach. And that's not necessarily uh, a, a bad thing. So I, I see more and more that it'll sort of be embedded within this sort of wellness world in a way that's uh, accessible to, to everybody. The other thing that I, I see um, a lot of in terms of mindfulness right now is that it's gone from these sort of more extended formalized practices to more of these sort of small micro practices, you know, things that you can kind of do in five minutes here or there throughout the day that are a little bit more tailored to the individual. And I think that that's really valuable too. The challenge with all of that, though, is that sometimes um, I think we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of some of the underlying philosophies that a lot of this uh, work stemmed from. I think sometimes we're using it uh, in way, I think a little bit of mindfulness is first aid is okay, but I think that the practices can be so much more. Um, I've got a uh, a friend who's an Indian researcher in the in the uh, from India in the in the in the yoga community, and she just laughs and says that these are all off-label prescriptions and mm -hmm. that you know traditionally none of this was ever really designed for um, you know to be used in these sort of acute fashion in sort of these medical settings. I, I don't know if I would agree with that. I think there's enough history that, that, that these have been used sort of therapeutically, uh, but never to the extent that we are right now. So it, it's kind of the wild, wild west. Uh, I think there's some really, really 
excellent debates and research going on right now in terms of, you know, what is mindfulness? Uh, who is mindfulness for? Uh, how do we measure it? How do we determine competencies in terms of who should be able to sort of share this work? Um, so I think that 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 works good. There's a lot, some interesting stuff now saying, you know, we've got all this research, you know, we need to start focusing on replication and larger sample sizes so that we can do subgroup analysis and see, you know, who this might be working for within any given population. So I think it's all a really exciting time uh, to be really critical about the area uh, to, to, to move it forward. And I really like some of the interdisciplinary work that's being done. So uh, Mind in Life, which is an organization that I've been really privileged to be involved with um, the last few years, they really like it if you have a philosopher on the team that, you know, or somebody that works through a faith community that maybe has more of that background in terms of some of where these programs came from, though it's becoming so secular now. Do you really need that person? Uh, somebody that's got a good physiology background, I think is really useful. Uh, somebody that's got a clinical background that can be a little bit more prescriptive, you know, a good researcher. Um, so it's more team-based where yeah. I think it was more like individual researchers before now. So most of what I see, there's growing pains, but most of what I see, I think it's it's going in, in the direction that it should. We'll have to see where it goes. I'm excited to see what it evol evolves into. Yeah. So you talked about podcasts earlier, I'm sorry, apps earlier. Um, what other resources would you recommend to our listeners? So um, what apps would you recommend or other resources? I'm, I'm hesitant to, to recommend apps because I yeah. don't, I don't, I, so I'll just, I'll just say that I don't have a formal relationship with anybody right now. Yeah. Um, I certainly, um, I've been approached by people, but I don't, I don't have a relationship with anybody right now. So the one that's sort of, you know, seems to be putting itself out there the most right now that you sort of see them, uh, a lot of, uh, that I think does a, a pretty good job. You know, you see head headspace Headspace. comes up a lot. A couple of years ago, uh, Calm was the one that was really uh, popular. Um, you know, there's, uh, honestly, we used to use one um, at, uh, for for the moms called Settle Your Glitter, where it was really <laughs> like this thing where you just like, to just sort of calm yourself. I mean, that's more like a calming relaxation thing. So, I mean, I think there's a bunch of them. What I really recommend that people to do is to, there's some, there's some preliminary studies out there where they've looked at, at the evidence for a few of them. So, you know, pull those up, read the abstracts. Uh, don't commit to anyone, you know, get a couple of free ones uh, on, on your, on your phone uh, and, uh, and see what works for you. Uh, but most, I mean, to be really honest, I think the apps are, are really useful, but the piece, again, the sort of fifth area of kind of these community practices, uh, a lot of, a lot of this work happens best if you've got kind of like a, a buddy um, or if it's happening within sort of some sort of community of practice. I mean, I think it's, we do a tremendous amount of work when we give people like a six week or an eight week introduction. I think that's fantastic. And we give them a really strong plan in terms of how to move forward. But in the same way as if, you know, you were go to the gym uh, for six weeks, um, like a kind of a boot camp, and then, and then sort of be left to your own devices. Most of the time, we kind of go back to what we were doing before. So finding somebody within your community to sort of, uh, that there's some accountability, that there's some shared motivation and some enthusiasm, I think can be really, really valuable. Uh, and that's certainly what we hear from our faculty and, and students on, on, uh, on campuses. You know, this is great. And I'm so great. You know, I, I really, you know, have appreciated the, the opportunity. And this is, these are things that are shifting, but you know, how can I do more of it? And how, you know, who can I, who can I connect with next? Sure. Well, we'd be sure to put those practices um, into action and be more mindful. Um, so that wraps up today's podcast. 
Thank you so much, Dr. McKenzie, for helping us understand mindfulness and how it can play a role in our health. You're very welcome. And again, thanks thanks for uh, for having me. I, I really appreciate your time. We appreciate you listening to the Uplift podcast series. Come back regularly to getupanddosomething.org for more Uplift podcasts. We'll be covering many new and exciting topics with the experts to help you improve your health and well-being. See you next time.